I want to do what I love and with really amazing people. And I want the outcomes to be that Congress looks different in five years and in 10 years, that we have a woman president, that we have women governors who are not white, that we've really done some of the things that are left to do in the glass ceiling checklist. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I recently spoke with Heather Colburn. Heather is founder of Run the World, a political, digital, and mail firm that works for progressive candidates and causes, especially women and people of color. Heather came to digital political entrepreneurship after building a mail firm called Rapid Returns. Previously, she also served as political consultant and fundraiser for progressive nonprofits and political organizations for almost 20 years, including Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, and the Human Rights Campaign. Heather has a good story of entrepreneurship in the progressive political space. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Heather Colburn of Run the World. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Heather. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am Heather Colburn. I am the CEO of Run the World. I have been a campaign fundraiser and political operative for almost 22 years. And I love to shatter glass ceilings and do impossible things by helping amazing candidates and organizations tell their stories. You like to shatter glass ceilings. What are some glass ceilings that you've helped shatter? Mm. Well, my first race ever was when Tammy Baldwin ran for the house the very first time. So that is um, kind of like the drug high I imagine exists and that people like to chase of she was the first woman from Congress and obviously back then the first openly gay person. And so since then have gotten to elect just amazing people to all levels of office Still would love to see the presidential ceiling shattered, one. And then uh, two, women governors are still, you know, in short supply out there. So that's another one. Um, And no black women governors. and Plenty of ceilings left. Yes. I'm going to be permanently employed. I'm fine. (laughs) So, Heather, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Is that uh, related to the clothing company? Indeed, before NAFTA, yes. But then the jobs moved overseas. But yes, it is named after my hometown. 
And that is typically the only reason people have ever heard of it. <laughs> what was your family like growing up? Was it a political place? You know, it's interesting. My parents are very political now, um, including my dad has been banned from Twitter three times for threatening the life of then President Trump. You know, my dad was a union member and he was a carpenter. And I remember, you know, really thinking about, you know, my mom a lot as a who had a more white collar job, but still was, you know, raising kids and all of that, but grew up with these ideals and concepts about the middle class, I think, that we should all have a fair shot that I think was very pervasive in my house. Certainly wasn't until I went off to and graduated from college that my parents really became open about um, how passionate they were about politics. Now it's something we talk about a lot. And you went to the state school, Wisconsin. Yes, Madison, the Harvard right? of Dane County. Yes. <laughs> University oh, of Wisconsin. Yeah. A very, a very fine school. What was that like for you? <laughs> I loved it. I mean, it was one so much bigger than my hometown. Um, and it was just an environment where I could, I could see things that were possible that I couldn't see in my hometown including the ability to work on political campaigns. I didn't even know that was an option until my senior year in college. And I took a poli-sci class where we could do work um, and then write a paper and get credit for it. And I ended up through a great connection, actually working in Tammy Baldwin's state legislative office as an intern. And she asked me to use those credit hours to work on um, the campaign she was going to start. And the rest, as they say, is history. And so feel very lucky to have the opportunities I've had. One time I talked to the founder of Emily's List, and she yeah. mentioned that the uh, Baldwin campaign as like a really key one for her and for Emily's List. And yes, flying in herself to yes. help and, and like calling through a certain set of the alphabet and yes and that's how we got to know each other i mean after that i i went to work for emily's list for many years and i remember them handing me the phone so i could talk to her and like just being filled with joy that i got to talk to the founder of emily's list then i got to work for her for many years so um yeah it was a very cool campaign and met a lot of amazing people what was it like at Emily's List then? I mean, it was wonderful. They were small enough that so many of us are still in politics and still friends. Um, the person who sat across in the cubicle from me now runs our direct mail division here. It was just a place you could go and grow and they would really mentor you. And I mean, I, I it was an incredible opportunity to keep doing what I'm passionate about. And yeah, it was, it was really cool. And it was, you know, now white women have uh, an easier time raising money. Right. And, but back then it was, you know, if you raise somebody $10,000, it was a big deal. You know, I remember on Tammy getting the Emily's List endorsement the first time and, and we were all in tears, you know, it was such a big deal. And, uh, it was really cool to be a part of them and to watch them grow so quickly. What were your impressions of Ellen Malcolm? Oh, God, I thought she walked on water. I still do. I've learned so much from her. I think of and still stories all the time, still the candidates, you know, about 
okay, you know, you have to be quiet after you ask for money. And it's like, well, Ellen Malcolm has always told me to take a drink of water after you make the ask because you can't talk if you have water in your mouth. You know, she had founded something at that time that was so groundbreaking and so cool. We did everything we could to elect women to office, you know, from raise money to be their friends, to take them shopping, to talk to their husbands, like watch their kids while they did call time. You know, we jumped off a cliff with them and never looked back. And it was really cool. You know, I have an interview with her, which I did b- before this podcast, well before I started this podcast. It makes me think I should find the tape of that if I still have it somewhere. What came next for you after it was like five years at Emily's List? Yeah, I... Then went and I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I, most people I don't think ever do. I really thought I would go take another job. And I ended up just doing a lot of fundraising consulting and managing some races for nonprofits, you know, Planned Parenthood and human rights campaign during the wave when we were fighting back the gay marriage bans in the States. And so got to do some really cool um, advocacy and fundraising. And then I managed a Supreme Court race here. And somebody I had met at Emily's List, we had wanted to start a fundraising direct mail business. And we decided to give it a try. And it was during the Wisconsin Scott Walker recall elections, if you remember in the Wayback Machine. And that was our first direct mail client. And our second direct mail client was Elizabeth Warren. Start at the top. And so that was the beginning of an idea that really turned out to work. <laughs> well, you know, I think when people are political and they're back in college, some think about politics from the point of view of wanting to be candidates. Some think about it in the policy world. Some think about it as political consultants. And it seems like an unreachable thing, but you're turning into a political consultant. They're a paid, you know, you have a firm in the business. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, it's interesting because I think one, like I started walking a path. I didn't know where the end was as that is life. Um, But so many people pre-design that path, right? And where they want to be. And I envisioned none of this. I thought was very passionate about education policy. And so I thought it was the policy side, but turns out that is far too boring for someone with my energy and how much I love talking to people. And so I had the luxury of being able to fall back on this great skill that I was, you know, taught, which was fundraising. And I knew that I could take a risk and try consulting. And if not, I always had that to fall back on. And so it made the mail business something easy to try. The digital, adding digital was obviously a much bigger undertaking because it requires, um, you know, staff and is a much bigger thing. But the mail really became something that we believed we could do differently. And I think that that became true. What was the name of your of your direct mail firm? Rapid Returns. And that's still going? Yeah. Well, we folded it in to run the world. So now it's a part of this business. It just became another way to help candidates have the resources to change the world. And it seems funny because you think people really write checks. But I mean... They do. In response to something that they get in a letter. Like in the mail, you know, you're like, who's got, I mean, some deposit days on some of our bigger races, you can deposit 
$50,000 from people who wrote checks and sent them in the mail. And it seems so old school, but it works still. When someone says a direct mail firm, I always thought about direct mail, meaning those sort of glossy brochures that seem to be more about persuasion or information than about fundraising. Is there a difference there or do you do and both? And that's where the innovation kind of came with us. So a lot of direct uh, fundraising, direct mail comes in kind of, you know, white envelopes and isn't as engaging as some of that political direct mail you get in the mailbox. And so our thought was the reason those mailers are effective is because they begin to tell the story from the minute they get taken out of the mailbox, right? And so you have the time between the mailbox and the recycling bin to persuade them to continue reading. And so that's what we do on our envelopes now. We've really seen that those images and the story, Mark Kelly was one of our big clients last cycle, and the imagery, right, that you can use in the story on that envelope to get people inside to skim the letter, to be honest, most people don't actually read it, skim the letter, turned out to be something that is still alive and well, even in a day and age when we think that digital is, is taking over. So it's kind of fun to still watch that. So what does an engagement look like for you now? Like say with Mark Kelly, how does that work come to you? And can you give some details about what's involved from gaining the client to through the election? Yeah. And so we, you know, work with a wide variety of candidates at all levels, but specifically in mail, it is still true. You know, the senator, governors, bigger races have much bigger ability to raise money in the mail. We work with a lot of partners and clearly we have a good reputation in the industry. And also I do still a lot of fundraising trainings and I love to contribute to the political community however I can, right? Uh, even outside my area of expertise or what I get paid to do here at RUN. And so those trainings, many times I meet fundraisers all across the country. And when they move up in their careers, I really have a belief that we have to help women in politics open doors, particularly women of all colors are underrepresented at the tables at the biggest levels. And so I maintain those connections. And as those people move up in their careers, they remember me. And then after that, you know, you begin to have a reputation for the work and the outcomes. And I think that that's been something that has really helped build what this is today and see what it becomes in the future. <laughs> so did the Mark Kelly campaign come to you then from from reputation or from one of these fundraisers? I had known the finance director for many years um, and she came to me and they had interviewed several firms and, you know, luckily chose us. And um, yeah, it was a real honor to get to tell his story. And we basically work with them to design, you know, the package and write it all and send it all and then analyze it and just like many of our fundraising tools, the things I love is the data. The data is always has the answer to the next best decision. And so that is the beautiful thing about the low dollar tools. And so then we help them build out the program from there. So does the campaign provide to you the list that you end up soliciting? Do you go out and obtain 
other lists yourself? How does that work? Both. So we want to mail their in-house list. And that is something that is an excellent source of revenue for campaigns. Their in-house list is that people they've already, who've already given to them in previous cycles. Exactly. Previous cycles or the current cycle. And then we send that on a regular schedule. And then we do want to bring in new donors. And mail is one of those tools where, you know, we're always looking for specifically direct mail responsive tools and donors, because obviously the behavior pattern isn't something we're going to see in a younger donor, right? But more likely in an older donor. And so, yeah, we'll go out and rent or exchange lists. The lists that work best for candidates are other candidate lists. And so work to build those mailings as well and keep it going from there. I can't even remember how many millions of pieces we sent last cycle for Mark Kelly and Amy McGrath, but exceeded on both of those races, $12 million through the mail. So when you think about it, it's, you know, a pretty powerful tool when it works. What's the trajectory of your company been from sort of, it sounds like starts out as rapid returns and turns into run the world. But tell me about like the ups and downs along the way. Yeah. I mean, I had a business partner and we ended up splitting. He went back to doing something he used to do in his old life. And we had decided in the mail business, uh, another consultant had encouraged us to think about starting a digital firm and had seen us do some innovation with mail and thought maybe this. And I thought, no, not right now. You know, I just, not right now. And she said, nope, right now. I want you to do it right now. And I was like, okay. So I decided to hire two people and do some very small state legislative races and kind of see, you know, what does this business look like? And how do we do the things that I would like to do and prioritize client services and all those kinds of things? But what do I need to know? And that was in 20, early 2016. So you can imagine what happened next. Trump won. Every woman in America was like, it's my time, I'm going to run. And so a new digital firm was needed right in the space. And it was a good time. And so we ended up going from these two people <laughs> to a firm of 21 at the end of that cycle. And then we finished this cycle with 25, 26, 27 staff. Um, so the growth trajectory was very quick. And I, you know, there are certainly startups who have that experience or have a little bit more measured growth, but it is still an honor to get to do this work and to get to change the face of power in this country. But certainly as a business owner, I mean, you certainly know this, you're out of your field of expertise and now you're being asked to be an expert in something else. And so there's going to be some bumps, right? I had managed big teams and programs and raised a lot of money, but not a business. And so I got my MBA through trial and error, um, which is, you know, the worst kind of MBA to get, but or the best accounting. If you're a new business owner listening to this, like hire the best accountant you can. Some of my biggest takeaways, I think, one, we've always been all virtual, which is interesting, but it in this time has allowed us to know how to build a virtual community. I have the best people and I love working with them. The biggest lesson I would say is for several years, we've been doing as radical race work as we could in both training within the company, in my training, in 
really trying to root out old ways of doing things and do new things. And that has enabled us to build and attract clients who really don't look like um, the kind of people in power. Our staff is incredible, different backgrounds and histories and come to this through many different ways of practicing changing the world. And, and I think that that has been the coolest experience to me to say, there are a lot of best practices in running a business and accounting is one of them. But there are a lot of things we just adopt from the people we see around them. And so what if we threw out those rules and did it differently? And I think that's been a cool experiment for me. What's your mix of clients? Is it like a combination of direct mail and digital? What's the proportion at this point? On the mail side, it's fewer clients because we really do mostly campaigns, right? We don't do a lot of nonprofits. And so that's really our focus. And obviously there are less statewide campaigns than there are for house races or other things. So on the digital client-wise, that's where more we have more of the clients and that takes more staff, right? Because of the writing and production and all of that. And so most of the staff ends up being on the digital side, even though they're equal divisions within the company, but the staffing is different. What is the scope of your work on the digital side? What what are the kinds of things that you do for your clients? We do two main things. We raise money and we help clients build lists and assets and to raise lots of money through um, not only email, but all of our grassroots digital tools and then mobilize voters, which, you know, certainly in a pandemic, more people are paying attention to digital as a powerful persuasion tool. And certainly some of the work that we have done and the studies we've done here continue to show that digital mobilization is an essential piece of the puzzle. And so that's been fun, I think, for me as well, um, one being a stats and analytics person um, and working in a persuasion tool where you're getting feedback from people is really cool. But of course, fundraising, my you know original love, it's fun. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the competitive landscape for you? Are you sort of up against direct mail fundraising firms or fundraising digital firms? Are other firms combinations the same way you are? Who are they? And and like what are the what are the key players? Talk about that that market a little bit. The mail side, one of the things that's really nice is it is an old school tool. And so there are not a lot of businesses doing campaign fundraising through the mail, right? And so there's Beth Foster's firm, who I know from Emily's list. My former business partner, who I met at Emily's List, you can see the threads. And there are one or two others. And one of the things that's so nice about that is we all know each other. We all respect each other. And if somebody's client load is full, we refer to other people. It's it's a really nice place to work because there isn't a lot of competition, obviously. On the digital side, there's so much more competition. To me, I always feel an honor when I am pitching against firms like Rising Tide. New Blue, obviously, is a firm that's doing very similar work. But of course, every cycle, especially after the presidentials, people start new digital firms. And I didn't start this firm coming from a presidential being a digital expert, right? I was a fundraising expert who wanted to use low-dollar tools to 
change the world. I actually come at the work a little differently because I think all of these channels work best when they're working together. But, you know, there are some amazing firms out there that have been around a long time and there will always be new firms popping up. But as you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And so, you know, every cycle also, I think some newer firms end up falling off because, you know, running a business is a whole different bag of wax than running a campaign. Would you say there's more campaigns seeking good digital consultants than can find them or more digital consultants chasing too few campaigns? What does it feel like out there? I mean, I think it it still feels like there are enough choices of firms that are different and good at certain things. And so I feel like there is enough business for people that are out there, particularly with a house race map, right? There are just always going to be so many house races that there are enough digital companies, I think, to service them, but also that, that are unique in their product and what they're good at. What I do see is I think it's hard for firms to figure out a model because it's so people-driven, right? Somebody has to write all of those emails and code them and send and analyze. It's just very people-driven. And so I think getting the client services right and making sure things go out without errors and a lot of the things that clients prioritize, it's it's hard to get that in I would say, you know, across the board in all the firms. And so I think that's a challenge that always faces a new firm. I've talked to some of the founders and people in charge of digital firms, including the ones that you mentioned on the show. Some of them have the online advertising component. Is that something that you do as well? Yeah. So we'll do advertising for both fundraising and persuasion efforts which is an ever-changing landscape as we regulate and change how we want to use those tools. So yes, we do a lot of social advertising and then in general, just advertising wherever people are on the internet. What do you like about this? It's a step away from some of the big strategic questions on campaigns. I know as someone who built software in the space that sometimes I had a frustration that I was so far down from actual decision-making, where's the gratification come from for you particularly? I mean, one, I will light up every time I get to talk to a candidate who's inspiring. We work with so many people who I have never wanted to run for office. I have no desire, but I meet some of the most amazing people and that gets me up every day. One of the interesting things on the digital side, because in mail, certainly I'm not making or helping campaigns make big decisions. It's a fundraising tool. But with digital, as we use it more for as a voter mobilization tool, I sit much more at a consulting table. And it's interesting because we work with so many women and many times the consultants are still men. And so they really do rely on having somebody who looks like them they're telling their story. And so to me, that is one thing I do love is getting to use my electoral side of my brain as well, right? Fundraising is very, to me, 
Like I've been doing that 22 years. I can teach you that in three days. This is not hard. But the voter persuasion side, particularly as, you know, vote by, by mail. Everything we did this cycle um, was influenced by vote by mail. And, you know, that sort of pivot and respond and how do we handle that? That sort of thing also keeps my brain very interested in the stuff we get to do every day here. What do you want to make of your firm now? You've got uh, 25 approximately employees. That's a point where there's a lot of management. There's a lot of opportunity because you have sort of critical mass of people to do things. Um, It's also a heck of a lot of responsibility to keep feeding them, to find the work for a team that big and pay them. Where do you imagine you taking this? Yeah, I definitely don't want to be too big because I think one of the things I really value about this job is I know everybody who works here and I know them pretty well, right? And I get to interact with them as humans. And so that still is important to me. I do want to continue to do more work, particularly on the digital side with statewides. Um, And also we do a lot of Black and Latinx candidates who are still really having trouble raising money and often aren't coming to the table with you know, a long, huge email list or, you know, having raised millions before. And so are digging in and scrappily building something that then pays off for them that I still love. Ultimately, I also think I do want to prove that you can do this differently. I get a lot of staff that comes here that's had very bad experiences working in politics they work 14 hours a day for two years on something or have so many clients, they can't even remember them. And they come somewhere where they're allowed to be human, where I don't just say we care about certain things. It's lived every day. When we started the firm, the entire staff sat around and said, what do we want it to be like to work here? And we designed a list of values and things that are important to us. And those values still guide our firm today. And they are not something that are just on paper. I want them to feel that lived experience. And for many times, people haven't felt, you know, on a campaign that's really busy, um, haven't felt like they've been heard or seen or valued because of the fast-paced nature of politics at the jump. And so it's really rewarding for me to show people we can rewrite the rules and still get the same result. Now, I might never have a house in the Hamptons. In fact, I'm pretty sure I never will. But that's okay for me as a business owner. I want to do what I love and with really amazing people. And I want the outcomes to be that Congress looks different in five years and in 10 years, that we have a woman president, that we have women governors who are not white, that we've really done some of the things that are left to do in the glass ceiling checklist. There are firms in the fundraising space. Reputations vary. There are some firms that are known to be very good citizens and like their fundraising practices are unimpeachable. And there are others where people look at them askance, but they may be very successful in raising money, but they might sort of burn lists and, and, and give people a bad reputation in the long run. How do you think about 
the right way to fundraise in the long term for the best interest of sort of progressives and Democrats? Humans first. I think digital, we still have a human who's talking to another human. And through storytelling, real life lived experience, using community members and other people who've been affected by the work, to tell those stories, ultimately, people want to feel a part of a movement. And we can provide that in the writing and the imagery and the storytelling. And I think that's ultimately what successful fundraising is, is building relationships with them. And I believe that digital, that is still possible. I mean, I've gotten a sense that the feedback from the market may not always lead people in the direction of great practices. Like if fear and alarmism or stretching the truth or even having your candidate do outrageous things in order to get attention and raise money, if a lot of those things work well, how do you make decisions in concert with a campaign about what to do or do you pursue those things? I mean, I believe still in digital tactics, like setting fundraising goals and trying to meet them. But I think within there, there is lots of real urgency on campaigns. There are lots of real-time shocking things that happen that we don't have to invent or mislead for money because the very real things that happen motivate people to give. I think of fundraising as nothing more than giving people the opportunity to change the world that they live in. And that by explaining the impact of their dollar, it is as effective as the fear tactics that are over the top, right? Elections are about choices. And so I think it's okay to define the choice in our opponent. But People stop believing that at some point, and that's why people unsubscribe and the lists get burned down, and then we have to get new lists, right? Is that inauthentic conversation? And I just think we don't have to actually work as hard as we think we do to come up with a compelling narrative, urgency, and reason to give. Can you give an example of a successful email or direct mail piece that you know, met a moment like that? I can give an interesting example. So I can remember Dr. Pritesh Gandhi ran last cycle in Texas and he came to us. We were his second digital firm. That's quite a uh, campaign slogan, Gandhi for whatever. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you like that yard sign? Mm-hmm. That's going to get some attention. It's like, Luther King for something. Yeah. Right, exactly. You're like, best last name. I always say I could be elected to anything if my last name was Kennedy. So, But he came to us and he said, we're sending all these emails about healthcare because it's a pandemic and people care about healthcare. None of my emails have mentioned that I'm a doctor. And you're like, there is a way to rise to the moment by just connecting our human lived experience to the moment. Often we have to work with candidates who, you know, there might be, you know, George Floyd and they're navigating a moment they haven't maybe considered a lot themselves. And so how do we navigate that moment? And I always think my advice is go back to who you are and start there. 
And it's interesting, the more polling I'm seeing this cycle, I think the electorate is acknowledging, I'm not going to agree with politicians on everything, but what I want to know is that there are good human is going to fight for me. And that's where the human story becomes essential to me, um, because that is how we demonstrate, again, that our values are lived and not just words. And so, you know, I think there's a needle to thread, but I think that you can run a very successful digital program living in the land of authenticity. The hard thing is, as a business owner, people have to write unique copy for all of the clients. And that's where I think you end up getting copy and things that isn't aren't unique to the race because of volume, right? I mean, and that's, you know, a real challenge for any digital business is, you know, copy <laughs> and the writing. I think politicians and people who work around them have a pretty good sense for the opportunities of a political cycle. They can tell, hey, is this going to be a d Democratic year or Republican year fairly early on? They're not always right, but they're often quite right. And, and in fact, the recruiting helps to exacerbate that sense because you get in, in a good year, you get better candidates and, th and they do better. What's your feeling about 2022 at this very early stage? Going back to the data, it's never our best time, right? Midterms, never our best time. Midterms when we're in power in, in the yes, presidency. Yes, typically yeah. we lose seats. You know, I think people understand that. This reminds me of, what, 2010 when we were in a bad economy and a lot of the governors lost, right? And, and there was a wave of, you know, you didn't fix the major problems before us as a society. So I think as a party, um, and I, I think across the country, telling our story in recovery and movement through the pandemic and economic recovery and paying attention to the electorate and how they care about that recovery and how we got there in many different ways is going to be essential to not losing seats and beating a statistical you know, we're uphill against history. But I think that we're in such a unique time in history. We will hopefully all have been vaccinated and be having this at our backs. And what does our party do um, and our leaders do to continue to get things back on track in this country and help people shine? Do you trust the electorate to, to get it right? In this context, there's so many crosswinds of information and disinformation. There's so many highly contested areas of policy and personality. Yep. You know, there aren't middle undecided voters anymore. A very polarized electorate exists and that we have to work with. But I do think, you know, back to our values and who we are as people, who we fight for, we should not seed, for example, the white women who voted for Trump again. We should not seed them. We're not done. Joe Biden is not the candidate that is now going to be on the ballot, even though his policies may in some ways be on that ballot. We need to stop looking at the electorate as monolithic. When you look back at last cycle and you know many of the surveys of the electorate, 
we ask them, what is a bigger priority for you, solving the economy or solving the pandemic? Like those two things could possibly ever be separated. We cannot have a healthy economy until we have a healthy workforce and consumer confidence in that economy. And I think we have to be better about telling our story and the effect of our policies and, you know, the real difference we will make in the world. And I think that we did not have enough chance to do that um, down ballot this cycle. And I, you know, hope we've learned and will use that information. I think there's a second question as well, is vote by mail for me. Vote by mail greatly expanded the electorate. And it allowed us to communicate with more voters than ever our message and to engage them. And those voters, typically in a non-vote by mail election, we would find it very hard to mobilize them because of the steps they have to take to vote, right? And so if they're not motivated, to motivate them costs a lot of money. Now, if we keep or continue to change in many states to make vote by mailing more permanent fabric, we remove that barrier to voting and the electorate shifts. And with a permanently shifted electorate, what happens? We don't know. Yeah. You earlier referred to doing radical race work. And I understood you to use the word race not to mean campaign, but to mean black, white, Hispanic, et cetera. What were you talking about? So for me, um, one of the great, I think, journeys that I've been on as a human and as a CEO is to realize how many of the rules that govern us are white supremacist rules, the rules of the patriarchy that have been handed down. And to radically back up and say, what if we did it differently here? What would that mean? And so for us, it's we work with an anti-racism coach and we work on our personal journeys, because many people think that the greatest way to change your workforce is to have someone come in and tell you how to do better hiring practices or support, you know, your people of many colors in the workplace when the answer is to become a better white person. And then that work radiates out of you. And so for me to become a better, um, I don't even want to use the word ally because action is what we need, not that. Two, um, we talk openly about it all the time with our clients inside the company and out. It has enabled us to work with different kinds of clients because we look like them. We are almost, um, and I hope hopefully in the next couple of hires, we'll be at 40% people of colors. And we do that because when we're hiring, we start with we're going to hire all people of colors. And then we work backwards, Right. And so our leadership team is wildly diverse. We are have a very high level. I mean, I'm LGBT, but there are, you know, very high population of LGBT staff here. And we live and breathe it every day. We're not afraid to talk about race. We're not afraid to be vulnerable on our journeys. We're not afraid to do the wrong thing, because if we did the wrong thing, at least we did something. I cannot tell business owners enough that this is good business policy. We're looking at in the next 20 years being a minority white country. Our workforces are rapidly changing. And the experience that people of colors have had working in politics is just not good. 
and we have to change for it to be good. And it is in all of our best interest for it to change. And so it's incredibly important to me and probably one of the things I get most excited to talk about because everyone else is afraid to talk about it. (laughs) What do you think you've learned about political entrepreneurship from your time running sort of a series of enterprises? To let go of any concept of what the outcome should be and focus more on what you want the journey to be. So often in elections, we are served a paradigm of winning and losing, right? And so we view a lot of things in politics as winning and losing. And there are many, many journeys we're going to start where the ending is going to look radically different. I never thought I would be a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. Even my self in college, I just would be excited to work on a race, you know, and to be here is exciting. I don't know it you know, where this firm will be in five or 10 years. But I also am not trying to control that. I'm just trying to do something differently to still change the world and to work with people who are super passionate about that. And if it's not here, I will do that somewhere else. Just that letting go of this has to look like this, or it has to be done this way. The have-tos restrict innovation. And so that allows me to just try things. And if they don't work, we try something else. When you introduced yourself, you talked about shattering glass ceilings. And when you named your firm, you named it, you know, Run the World, which for me, it's been very hard to sort of self-promote. And I think it is probably more so for, you know, I'm 6'2 white man, right? How do you get comfortable with talking yourself up, talking your firm up, and so on? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is, one, I've always been a fundraiser. So my job is to go out and confidently sell a product, which has been more traditionally a candidate, and ask people for their support. And so in a way, this has been easier on that side. But I think the mesh, as you understand in this business, is delivering the product that gives you the confidence to sell that. And I think early on, that was my struggle is there were times I'm saying something and I was like, God, I really hope we can do this. And leveling up the staff and the work so that I am confident because I'm confident. Um, not projecting confidence. <laughs> you sound confident because you are confident because right. you can, because you know you can back up what you say. Yes. Yeah. I think I I think I get that. I think that's a great answer. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? And yes, I did name this after a Beyonce song. I guess that's the question. Like a lot of people say, I can remember being this discussion and you know with somebody. I was like, we have to pick a name, and he was like, well, Colburn, and I was like, oh God, who wants to name anything after themselves? So let's do Beyonce. So yes, I did name it after that. And if you get to name a company, go big. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, you too. Congrats on, you know, everything that you've built. And it's been great talking to you. Pleasure for me. That was Heather Colburn of Run the World. She's at runtheworld.com. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.